Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 11. Last week we talked about verse 1, and today we're going to talk about verse 2, and maybe get into verse 3. Um, last time I left you off, we uh, talked about um, the act of measuring in Scripture and what it symbolizes. It symbolizes God taking inventory of His property and evaluating the spiritual condition of His people. And John here is told to rise and measure the temple of God. This is the third commandment in this parenthesis. He's first told to write not, seal up and write not, to go and take, and now to rise and measure. He's asked to rise and measure three things, the temple of God, the altar, and them that worship therein. And we asked last week what this temple could be. This is the tribulation temple. This isn't the temple of Solomon, destroyed in 586 B.C. It's not the temple rebuilt by Zerubbabel and the returnees after the captivity in Babylon and fortified by Herod. That had fallen and was destroyed by the Romans uh, several years before Revelation was written. And it's not the millennial temple that is described in detail in the book of Ezekiel, a temple where there will be sacrifices. Sacrifices that are not a stumbling block to me as a believer that knows that Jesus Christ finished and was the ultimate sacrifice on the temple, in the uh, ultimate sacrifice for sins on Calvary, but a memorial that looks back on what Messiah has done and a means of livelihood for the priests and the Levites that will live in that day. So that's where we ended our discussion last week. Obviously, what John is told to measure here is the tribulation temple. And we know that even today the Temple Institute in Jerusalem is busy about making preparations for the reestablishment of this temple. This temple would have to be built on the Temple Mount, which is not controlled by the Israelis. Its control has been given or delegated to the Muslims who administer the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So obviously for this temple to be rebuilt, for which many of the preparations have already been made, something would have to happen to the Dome of the Rock. All it would take is an earthquake to cause it to fall down. That thing's been dug under so much, just a little shake and it would probably fall flat. The destruction of the Dome of the Rock or, or provisions to build a temple could be associated with what Ezekiel prophesies in chapters 38 and 39 about an invasion of Israel in the last days. An invasion that very well could preclude the tribulation period. So it's interesting to know that Subsequent to this deal, this nuclear deal that was made with Iran, that some of Iran's generals were in Russia last week, visiting Russia and meeting with Russian government officials. We know that that battle described in Ezekiel most likely involves Russia, Iran, and a, con uh, uh, a confederation of Islamic na nations. And if there was an Islamic invasion of Israel and God overthrew those armies and Islam was defeated, then many of the world's Muslims would, would, would leave their faith. And Islam would become a non-entity. And then a door would open for the temple to be rebuilt. But what, that's just speculation. I don't know exactly how these things are going to come to pass, but we know there's a temple in Jerusalem during the days of tribulation. And their preparations have been made so that this temple could be erected. It wouldn't take 46 years to finish, like the temple Herod beautified and expanded. 
it would go up very quickly. The models are there. They, they've got all the updated technology. They want to put heated floors. They want to have water temperature regulators on the basin that the priest would wash in. It's very interesting. Ricky and I visited the Temple Institute, and we saw a lot of the artifacts that have already been made. The candelabra or the menorah has already been made of pure gold, and it's on display in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. John is told to rise and measure this temple. Okay? Permission for the Jews to rebuild their temple, I believe, is connected with the peace treaty that begins Daniel's 70th week. We've talked extensively about that prophecy in the past. Okay? The man of sin will confirm a covenant with many for one week. There's a treaty, an agreement between Antichrist and Israel. And then in the midst of the week, he goes into the sanctuary and defiles it. So obviously this covenant is connected with that sanctuary. This would happen, this desecration would happen at the midpoint of the tribulation. The treaty is broken. Israel is betrayed and scattered and the temple is desecrated. So in preparation for this or in the context of this, John is told to rise and measure the temple of God, the, 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 the altar, and them that worship therein. God is taking spiritual evaluation of His property, and it's being measured not for glory, but for desecration and for destruction. Okay? The temple, the Jewish temple in history was destroyed twice. It was destroyed by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, and it was destroyed by the Romans under the general Titus. When you visit Jerusalem today, they've unearthed a street running along the side of the, um, the temple mount complex. The western wall of the temple is, a, is a, a retaining wall. It wasn't actually part of the temple building. Herod expanded the temple grounds and expanded the court and built this retaining wall so there was this large plateau atop the Temple Mount and a large court where people could gather. That's the western wall is the remnants of that retaining wall. And at the base of that wall is a street that's been unearthed that dates to the time of Christ. There were arches and stuff that lined the streets and very, it's very possible that Jesus Himself walked those streets and ministered there. But you can go to this place and along this street there are piles of rubble and stones that have been unearthed from the western wall. And those are piles that are sitting there in the place that they fell down when the Romans pulled them down in A.D. 70. So you can actually see uh, signs of that destruction. The, the, the piles of rubble that have been unearthed are piled right where they were when the Romans pulled them down. So the Jewish temple has been destroyed twice. It's been desecrated twice and will be desecrated a third time. Antichrist has this temple built because his intention is to use it as the center of worship for him. He doesn't have it built to destroy it. He has it built to be his throne and to be the place where he is worshipped as God. It's built to be desecrated. So in a sense, this won't be like Nebuchadnezzar or like the Romans. It'll be more like something that happened in Israel 
in the days of Manasseh, something that happened in Israel in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. The temple of God is being measured for its desecration. Okay? I want to visit a chapter in Old Testament history that talks about another time the temple was desecrated. And it will give you an idea of what this temple, what will happen to this temple. Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Just reading this passage reminded me of the life of King Manasseh in Judah. And what he did in the temple of God. This was Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple has been desecrated. Zerubbabel's temple was desecrated in 168 B.C. And the third temple will be desecrated by Antichrist. The fourth temple, the millennial temple, will never be desecrated. It will never be destroyed. But what's coming in Israel will follow the pattern of what's happened before. History repeats itself. And the only thing men never learn from history is that men never learn from history. 2 Chronicles 33 says Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. And he reared up altars for Balaam and made groves. Groves were trees that were planted as a place of worship. Ancient tree huggers. You know, the tree huggers of the day are descended from the tree huggers of bygone days. They used the trees as a means to worship pagan deities. Worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord where the Lord had said in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. Also he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit or a demon and with wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel will I put my name forever. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your fathers so that they will take heed to all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen, whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. They would not listen. So Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the godliest kings in the history of Judah. And yet his son was one of the most wicked. Friends, there's proof right now that godly parents can produce wicked offspring. 
And we need to search our hearts as parents to make sure that when we see our children turning from the Lord, it's not because of anything in us. But it is possible for children to turn away from the faith of their father and mother and turn to the, to, to the evil one despite genuine efforts of the parents to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's possible. So just because a child goes after the world and forsakes the things of God doesn't mean the parents necessarily did something wrong. Doesn't mean that. Here's proof. But this isn't the end of the story about Manasseh. I'll get there in a minute, but there is a lesson we need to learn. How old was Manasseh when he began to reign? Twelve years old. He was twelve. I want you to remember that. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 20. Sometimes God has better plans for us and we can't see that and we beg Him and beg Him and beg Him for our own way and sometimes He gives us our own way. And when He gives us our own way, the consequences of that are dire. Turn to 2 Kings 20. In those days was Hezekiah, the godly king of Judah, sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus saith the Lord, Set your house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember, I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart, and I have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, for Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people. Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up into the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years. God told Hezekiah, Set your house in order. It's time for you to die. Hezekiah begged God for more life, and God said, All right. I'll give you 15 years. Three years later, Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, was born. Manasseh was 12 years old when his father died and took over the kingdom. Hezekiah got things his way. And what that resulted in was the birth of a son who would become the most wicked king in the history of Judah and a king that desecrated the temple of God that Hezekiah, his father, worked so hard to restore in terms of the worship of God there in Judah. Be careful when we beg God for something that He seems to be telling us is not what's best. That's a lesson we can learn from Hezekiah's life and from this testimony of the desecration of the temple. But as in the case of Job, the end of the Lord is kind and pitiable. This is not the end of the story where Manasseh is concerned. Turn back to 2 Chronicles 33. Because of what Manasseh had done, it tells us in verse 11 that the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Syria, the same uh, nation that attempted to invade Judah. And Hezekiah laid the letter of threat out before the Lord and God miraculously delivered the people from the Assyrian host. Well, now the Assyrians back and are used as an instrument of God's judgment. They took Manasseh among the thorns. It was a means of torture. They drug him through the thorns. It could have been something like the stinging nettle 
when we were that grows in that part of the world. When we were in Ladakh last time, it was funny. You know, some of the team members, uh, some of the ladies in particular, were they were like picking up lizards and wanting to touch everything on the ground or whatever. And we were on a trek and very high altitude, and there's these little stubby plants on the ground. And it was funny because Ricky and I know what they were. They don't grow very big up high, but we were like, why don't you all, since you all like to touch everything, why don't you touch those plants? And of course they did, and it just puts a burning fire sensation in your fingers that won't go away for a long time. It's called a stinging nettle. In Nepal, in the western part of the country, they grow large. And a form of discipline in the village is that the parents will literally break off a branch and swap their, swap their kids with it. Discipline. Or they'll take the village fool, or they'll take the, 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 the person in the village causing trouble, and they'll throw him in there. Okay? It is torture. But that's what the kings of... And it's very humiliating. That's what the kings of um, Assyria did to Manasseh. They drug him through the thorns, they bound him with fetters, and carried him, not to their capital, but to Babylon. Now listen to this. Instead of cursing God, instead of becoming more hardened at heart, says when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And prayed unto him, and was entreated of him, and heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. All that the people of this country would respond to God's judgment in the way that this king did. Humble themselves. The Bible says, if my people which are called by my name, that's talking about Israel. Okay, let's make no mistake. It's not talking about America, but the principle is there. If a nation that knew God and turned from Him would humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, that's the part that gets forgotten about, God will hear their prayer and heal their land. And heal their land. Manasseh humbled himself in his judgment. And here's the proof that he humbled himself. Now after this he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate, encompassed about Ophel and raised it up a very great height, and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. Now here's the proof that he repented. He took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord. He got rid of the idols. Don't tell me you come to Christ and you've humbled yourself before God and you've repented, but you continue to carry with you the ways of the world. Don't tell me you're some you know, secular music artist and you come to Christ, but yet you continue to sell your stuff that blasphemed Him. No, you're just trying to tap into the Christian market because you're washed out and you can't make money in the secular market anymore. Give me a break. And it says that he took these things that he had built and he cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed their own peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. So Manasseh repented. He desecrated the temple. He was judged by God and he repented. You know, God can save even the worst sinner. And there's a lot of people that claim the name of Christ that have a problem with that. They can't envision that God could take a mass murderer like Ted Bundy and save him. They can't even 
conceive that God could take a wicked beast of a man like Jeffrey Dahmer and save him so that these men are in the kingdom of God and not in hell. Those things are a stumbling block to many people that claim the name of Christ. If in your mind you can't conceive or you can't believe that even the most vile of offenders could be saved by God, then I don't think you know Jesus. And I don't think you know what He saved you from. I believe Ted Bundy's in heaven. I've heard his testimony. I believe Jeffrey Dahmer got right with God. And he knew he was going to die. And he knew he deserved it. And he was killed in prison. A merciful thing. But there are some Christians, when you say that too, they get so angry about that because they don't understand that there's none righteous, no, not one. And the testimony here of Manasseh is that God can save the vilest of offenders. And but for God's grace, we're no different. We have the potential, we have the inclination to be just as evil and wicked as the most wicked men in all of history. All they did was give in to the human condition and to the lust and things that beset us because of what we are born into, and that is sin. But Manasseh's repentance was worth mentioning this morning because it is a testimony that even the worst of men can be saved, and if even the worst of men can be saved, even in the worst of times, the worst of men can be saved. We are in dark times. Our government is a joke. Our president is a wicked man. He's a deceptive wicked man. He's no different, in my opinion, than Manasseh. He just does it openly and with a big smile. Okay? Or not openly, clandestinely and with a big smile. God can save him. He did it for this king. Why don't we as Christians, instead of being so worried about a stupid Republican debate, why don't we pray that God would raise up a leader for our next election? Look, if you're already starting to concern yourself about an election cycle, if you haven't learned already that the Republican Party is not going to help you, then you really are a fool if you haven't learned that. You're going to go through the same cycle again and you're going to put the same faith in the same people and they're going to let you down. It's funny to me that the news media and the Republican Party are so concerned that somebody on TV would make a comment about blood and then presume it was talking about a woman's menstrual cycle when that's not what was said. But yet it's okay to put TV shows on there that use the name of God, that use the name of Jesus Christ and blaspheme Him. Every daggum show on television has to use God's name in vain and Jesus Christ's name in vain. They don't care about the blood and the violence. Nobody cares about human beings being dismembered out of their mother's womb to profit from the sale of body parts. Those things are okay. But let's make a huge deal because... Somebody says something about a woman having blood coming out of her eyes. What a joke. This country is backwards. And in my opinion, we're worse than what's described here in Manasseh's reign. We're worse. We think we're righteous when we're not. Manasseh just went headlong after the heathen and confessed it openly. We think we're worshiping God and we're not. But there's hope. God can bring the worst of men to repentance even in the worst of times. So let that be an encouragement to us today. There was another time in Israel's history when the temple was desecrated. Not destroyed, but desecrated. This involved Solomon's temple. 
there was a second desecration that occurred under with Zerubbabel's temple. And this happened sometime around 150 B.C. It was a king of the, uh, the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great's death divided into four empires under his four generals. And the descendants of those four generals became kings of those respective regions until the Roman Empire absorbed all of it. Okay, And all of this was prophesied in Daniel in detail before it ever happened. In the book of Daniel, uh, chapters 10 and 11, we've talked about this before, there's very detailed prophecy that traces the history of two of these kingdoms, the king of the north and the king of the south, the Ptolemites and the Seleucids. And, and the relationship and the arguments between those kingdoms would affect Israel, particularly during the 400 years of history between Malachi and Matthew. And in Daniel's chapter 10 and 11, there's very specific prophecies that were prophesied many years before and details about marriages and all kinds of things that have been shown to have transpired in history. So much so that liberal scholars have tried to argue that there were two Daniels. The one that wrote the real Daniel and then somebody that came later and added this stuff because they say there's no way this stuff could have been written in detail ahead of time. But those are just people that don't believe God and don't believe His Word. Foolishness. But these things are written about and this desecration of the temple is prophesied. History shows that it took place under a man named Antiochus Epiphanes who is or was a type of the Antichrist that will come. So when we see what Antiochus did in the temple, we can get an understanding of what will happen when Antichrist comes. In fact, if, as you're reading through um, some of these things in Daniel, and we've talked about it a little bit, Daniel in chapter 11 is describing... Antiochus Epiphanes, and then he telescopes across the quarters of history to the last days, right to Antichrist, because they're a type of the same person. Anytime we see a phrase, time of the end, unto the time of the end in Daniel, we know he's telescoping. Okay, And so there's a lot of things we learn about Antichrist that we've talked about a bit in the past in here, and we'll get into that some more when we get into Revelation 13 and the beast out of the sea. But I wanted to read you an excerpt from the writings of Flavius Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian that um, during the rebellion of the Jews against Rome, he was um, uh, spared by the Romans and he was entrusted with writing a history of the Jews. And he did this. And he writes a short paragraph or two about the desecration of the temple under Antiochus Epiphanes. These things were prophesied in Daniel 10 and 11, Daniel 8. So go back and read later and you can see how God wrote these things ahead of time. And now I'm reading to you how they were fulfilled in history. King Antiochus, returning out of Egypt for fear of the Romans, made an expedition against the city of Jerusalem. And when he was there in the 143rd year of the kingdom of the Seleucids, he took the city without fighting. So this was 143 years after uh, the Greek Empire broke into four. Okay, uh, And he took the city without fighting. Those of his own party opened the gates to him. And when he had gotten possession of Jerusalem, he slew many of the opposite political party. And when he had plundered it a great deal of money, he returned to Antioch. But it came to pass after two years, in the 145th year, on the 25th day of that month, which is called... 
Koslin and by the Macedonians Apelius in the 153rd Olympiad that the king came up to Jerusalem and pretending peace got possession of the city by treachery. Just like Antichrist will do. At the, which time he spared not so much as those that admitted him into it on account of the riches that lay in the temple. But led by his covetous inclination for, and in order to plunder its wealth, he ventured to break the league or the treaty he had made. So he left the temple bare and took away the golden candlesticks and the golden altar of incense and the table of showbread and the altar of burnt offering and did not abstain from even the veils which were made of fine linen and scarlet. He also emptied it of its secret treasures and left nothing at all remaining. And by these means cast the Jews into great lamentation and he forbade them to offer their daily sacrifices which they had offered according to the law of God. And when he had pillaged the whole city, some of the inhabitants he slew, and some he carried captive, together with their wives and children. So the multitude of those captives that were taken alive amounted to about 10,000. He also burnt down the finest buildings, and when he had overthrown the city walls, he built a citadel in the lower part of the city, for the place was high, and overlooked the temple on which he fortified it with high walls and towers." and he put into it a garrison of Macedonians. However, in that citadel dwelt the impious and wicked part of the Jewish multitude, for whom it proved that the citizens suffered many and sore calamities. And when the king had built an idol altar upon God's altar in the temple, he slew swine upon it, or pigs, and so offered a sacrifice neither according to the law nor to the Jewish religious worship in that country. He also commanded the people to forsake the worship which they paid their own God and to adore only those who He took to be gods and made them build temples and raise idol altars in every city and village and offer swine upon them every day. He also commanded them not to circumcise their sons and threatened to punish any that should be found to have transgressed His injunctions." He also appointed overseers who should compel them to do what he commanded. And indeed, many Jews there were who complied with the king's commands, either voluntarily or out of fear. But the best men and those of the noblest souls did not regard him, but did pay a greater respect to the customs of their country than concern as to the punishment which he threatened to be to the disobedient. On which account they every day underwent great miseries and bitter torments, for they were whipped with rods and their bodies were torn to pieces. Some were crucified while they were still alive and breathed. They also strangled those women and their sons whom they had circumcised as the king had appointed, hanging their sons about their necks as they were upon the crosses. And if there were any sacred books of the law found, they were destroyed, and those with whom they were found miser miserably perished also." So, my friends, the Jews have suffered for many years. This is a chapter of history we don't know much about. But this was prophesied in Daniel, and it happened. The temple was desecrated. And Antichrist is a type, or, or Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. These types of things are what await the Jews, and what await the temple that John is told to rebuild. Antiochus is different than Antichrist, though. He emptied out the temple and carried the stuff away to his own place, and erected an altar and sacrificed a pig on it. 
Antichrist is different because he will use the temple as a base. He's not going to pillage it and leave. He'll use it as a base for, for himself to be worshipped as God. And there'll be an image of him put in this temple and it will be desecrated. But these types of persecutions are the types of persecutions that await the Jewish people in the time of tribulation. And these things will happen not without witness from God because there'll be witnesses that the beast can't touch until their testimony is finished. But this will serve to waken Israel out of slumber and to show them that this Antichrist is not their Messiah. Yeshua is their Messiah. And He will come and rescue them at their utter end. And all Israel will be saved, those alive, on that day. As I read this, I find it interesting that there were those, uh, even in that time, that just disregarded this. They're going to keep doing what God had commanded them to do, regardless of what Antiochus has to say. Regardless of the punishments or the threats. I hope, if the Lord tarries His coming for this church, there will be noble men and women among us who will not regard the President of this country. Who will not regard the empty robes in the Supreme Court. Who will not regard Congress or the Republican Party. And will continue to do the things that God has called us to do regardless of the threats and regardless of the punishments. I hope there will be noble ones among us, the church, that will follow this example. And it was those noble ones, many of whom perished, that testimony led to the rising of the Maccabees. And God used them to overthrow these wicked kings and to reestablish the temple worship proper. And some amazing things happened. That's where the festival of Hanukkah comes from. Jesus went up to the temple and celebrated Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. God worked a miracle regarding the light in the temple uh, when the city was under siege and the oil ran out. And that's what that time period is what's being referred to. It was a time of persecution. It was a time when God was silent between the testaments. Zerubbabel's temple was desecrated. Solomon's temple was desecrated. The tribulation temple will be desecrated. Unlike Antiochus, the Antichrist will stay on the scene and set himself up as God, not the gods that he wants to worship. Unlike Manasseh, Antichrist will not humble himself. He is defiant unto the end. Defiant unto the end. And the Bible says in Daniel, he'll simply be broken without hand. In fact, it really isn't that much of a fight. <laughs> Messiah puts his foot on the Mount of Olives and he takes the beast and the false prophet and throws them alive into the lake of fire. Two men went alive in history straight to heaven, Enoch and Elijah. There are two that will go alive straight to the eternal lake of fire. Antichrist and the false prophet. When you die now, you don't go to the lake of fire. You go to a holding cell, the county jail, hell. Then there's a day coming when death and hell are cast into the lake of fire, the state pen. So if you're in hell, you haven't even been judged yet. You're awaiting judgment. But unlike Manasseh, Antichrist will be the defiant unto the end. He is the son of perdition. There is no place for repentance in him. None. Just like there was no place for repentance in Judas. No repentance was found in him. He cried and he was sorrowful, but tears do not equal repentance. Understand that. It didn't equal repentance in Judas's life. He perished 
the son of perdition, and he went to his own place. That's what the Bible says. I don't know what that means. I believe Judas is somehow tied to Antichrist. I don't know what that means. I'm not going to speculate or take a dogmatic position. But defiant unto the end. Tears and embarrassment do not equal repentance. If you've wronged your brother and you're embarrassed and you've shed a few tears, you've not made it right till you repent. And if you can't repent, the relationship can't be restored. So we learned some important lessons today. Ungodly children can arise out of a godly home through no fault of the parents. It should be an encouragement though that even ungodly children that go toward the worst of things can be brought to a place of repentance. Hezekiah didn't live to see it, but it happened. And it was undoubtedly a result of Manasseh remembering those things from his childhood when he sat in prison. So there is potential there. We have, I know there are some of us in here that have children that aren't following the Lord now. There's hope. God can bring them to repentance. And it may be after your lifetime. But that's fine in terms of eternity because it'll all be sorted out there and there'll be joy uh, there. Uh, tears don't equal repentance. Okay? That's another lesson we can learn from today. Getting things our way when our way seems better than God's way can be a big mistake. And it can bring about terrible consequences. You see, we're studying the book of Revelation and it's funny how measure the temple of God brings us back to all this stuff that we can apply to our lives now. So this idea that prophecy doesn't apply now and it can't benefit the way we live our lives is foolishness. If we learn how to interpret Scripture with Scripture and do a little cross-referencing, we can learn some pretty important things from Scripture. But the temple of God, John is told to measure, is measured for desecration. It's measured for what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. And undoubtedly, this will be patterned after what has already happened in the two previous temples. I mentioned the Temple Institute earlier in Jerusalem. It's a fascinating place. And it, you have to buy a ticket to enter into there. Ricky and I wrestled with visiting it. I'll admit to you today, we talked to a brother uh, there in Jerusalem and he just thought it was profound that we would want to purchase admission tickets to this place. You know, why would you want to give money to the Temple Institute? You know, that Temple Institute is working to build a temple for Antichrist. And you're just contributing to it. And I, I had to pause. I couldn't really answer that. I had to pause and consider what he had to say. Ultimately, we purchased tickets and we went in there because we wanted to see with our eyes these things that had been talked about. And we felt like seeing these things would allow us to, to, to explain things in detail to Israelis and have an understanding. And I had just talked about the altar of incense in here when we were preaching through Revelation. And there was an altar of incense that's been built. And it's ready for use. These things are built for use in the tribulation temple. And I wanted to get a picture of it. I'm not, you're not supposed to take photos in there. But I, I snuck one in so you guys could actually see what that looked like. Notwithstanding, Ricky and I went in there and we realized that the people giving the tours through there, the young people, first of all, their history wasn't correct in several instances. Okay, These people have not believed upon Yeshua the Messiah. They don't realize it, but they're not building this temple for Messiah. They're building it for the anti-Messiah. And they will be deceived. Their work is not for the temple of Messiah. 
It's fascinating work. It's encouraging to see prophecy come to pass because we know there must be a temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation. But this work will be desecrated. Much of it will be destroyed. Many of these artifacts will be carried away and destroyed. And the temple will be desecrated. It's the temple of Antichrist. It's the temple of the beast. The seat of the beast. We need to remember that. When we get so goo-goo-gaga about Israel and the Temple Institute and all of this, Israel still rejects Jesus as Messiah. Israel is not a God-fearing nation. It's a secular nation. They are enemies for the sake of the Gospel. They're beloved for the sake of the Father and His election. That's why we ought to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Love them. Share the Gospel of Yeshua with them. Stand by them. Defend them. Protect them as is best we can. But understand that there's a storm coming. And they must go through the thorns far more painful and torturous than what Manasseh was drugged through before they wake up. Manasseh is really less a picture of Antichrist and more a picture of Israel. Israel will be given over to the deception of the man of sin. And they will be drugged in judgment through the thorns. And having been drugged through the thorns, they'll wake up and call upon God. We can rest assured that that will happen. But these things are being measured not for their glory, but for their desecration. It's God's temple. He said He would put His name in Jerusalem, but it's a man-centered temple. They think they're worshiping God, but when you reject the Son of God, you're not worshiping God. I don't care if you say you believe in God. If you don't believe upon Jesus Christ, you are of your father the devil. God is not your father. Jesus said those things. Jesus also said that a man was of more value than many sparrows. Did you know that? Jesus said a man, a human being, was more valuable than an animal. So you need to remember that. Those are Jesus' words. One unborn baby, I think I said this last week, one unborn baby slaughtered in her mother's womb is more valuable, in my opinion, than 100,000 Cecil the Lions. And, he's, and it's more valued than 200,000 of your little foo-foo dog that you treat better than you treat your own child. Shame on those that would put animals above humans. Anytime animals are put above humans, there's always human sacrifice. Always. That's historic. It's significant that John is told to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those that worship therein. The altar would be a reference to the brazen altar of sacrifice. Okay? That altar has been built. I've seen it with my eyes. That brazen altar. It, these things, like the menorah, have been built for use in a temple. They're not models. They're very clear when you go in there and tour through that area. But that brazen altar that was measured by John here, John was shown that how many years before it was been built? And now it's there. Prophecy fulfilled. He's the, the main altar of sacrifice he's told to measure. He's told to measure the worshipers. Who would that be? It would be the priests and the Levites and the Jews that are so excited to have their new temple and think we can worship God, the God of our fathers, in the right way now because we have a temple. No, you can't worship the God of your fathers the right way until you recognize His Messiah, His servant, His Son. 
And they're going to learn that the hard way. Why is John told to measure these things that are obviously meant to be judged and desecrated? Because God is the judge. God is the evaluator of man's worship. Not attendance. Not denominational leaders. Not political correctness. God is the evaluator of our worship. You come to Him on His terms. You don't come to God on your own terms. Jesus talked about those, those that worship God must worship Him in spirit and truth. And He did it in the context of telling the woman at the well, you don't even know what you worship. She talked about our fathers worship God in this mountain. Jesus said, you, you, you worship what you know not what. Don't you understand salvation is of the Jews? Jesus had the gumption to tell somebody, you don't even know what you worship. So why in the world is it so unthinkable for me to say to someone claiming to be a Christian that brings reproach on the name of Christ, that you, you're not a Christian. Why is it so unthinkable for me to say a Catholic's not a Christian or a Mormon's not a Christian? I'm just following the example of my Lord. He told the woman at the well, you don't even know what you worship. Because you don't come to God on your own terms. You come to Him on His terms. And His terms are Messiah. Not some prophet, not some self-proclaiming prophet or, or a peeper at stones or a magician like Joseph Smith or a, or, or a, or a raging bloodthirsty uh, uh, warlord like Muhammad. You come to God on His terms. God hates man-made religion. God hates it. I didn't say it. He says it. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture concerning religion. Because this temple of God in the tribulation, these worshipers, this altar, this is man-made religion. And God's already told the Jews several times in their Tanakh what He thinks about that stuff. But they don't listen. Isaiah 66, 1-3, Daniel. Jim, if you'll look up... Uh, John 16, 1-3, and Bob Amos chapter 5, 21-27. God uses some pretty strong language here. Far stronger than any language Donald Trump used in a Republican debate the other night. God uses blunt language. Not blasphemous, not crude, but blunt. There's a time to be blunt. Isaiah 66, 1-3 Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all, the, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. That's God's view of religion. You can take your lamb to the altar in Jerusalem in the days of tribulation all you want, but you may as well be cutting off a dog's head and throwing it on there. 
you may as well be pouring out swine's blood because you've chosen your own way. You can go to church every Sunday. Okay, you can be there and punch the church clock, but you may as well be sleeping off a hangover because you've chosen your own way. Who are the ones to whom God looks? The cry of the hour today is, love God, I love Jesus, but the Bible, it's just written by men. God says the ones to whom He looks are the ones, not that read His Word, not that pay lip service to His Word, but that tremble before His Word. Are we those that believe the Bible is authoritative in such a way that we tremble before it? That's the one to whom the Lord looks. You can do all of this other stuff, but God knows the heart. And God's view of religion is not positive. I gave you guys these verses in the wrong order. I'm sorry. Bob, let's do the Amos passage first. Amos 5, 21 through 27. God's a little more blunt here. God says, I hate, God hates, you may not be able to handle that, but God hates and despises your feast days, your religious festivals. God says, I hate them. You can offer me offerings all day long, but I'm not going to accept them. You weren't even worshiping me in the wilderness, Israel. In the 40 years of wandering, when they brought sacrifices, yeah, they were bringing sacrifices to the tabernacle, but God knew that in their hearts they longed after the gods of the Egyptians and the gods of the Moab, Moabites and the Ammonites, after Moloch and Keun and the, and the idolatry that they had fallen into. That's where their heart was, and they didn't deceive God. God knew, oh yeah, you're going through the religious things that I commanded, but I know what your heart desires. You weren't even worshiping me as a people during those 40 years in the wilderness. Yet God was merciful and still brought them into the land. And there were those who were faithful. Praise God. Uh, let's turn to John 16. It's funny because Stephen, when, when Stephen in Acts 7 is preaching and they get angry, he actually quotes this passage. And what really makes the Jews angry is he realizes that they're not paying attention and taking him seriously. So he just bluntly calls them uncircumcised of heart and mind, a stiff neck. But he cites this passage in Amos and accuses them of, you didn't, your fathers didn't even worship God in the wilderness. So Stephen cited that scripture and uh, he was killed for it. John 16, 1-3. Jim. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that, God, that he doeth God's service. 
And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. That's right. Jesus spoke those words. Exactly. Jesus warned that the day was coming when people who thought they were following God would kick His followers out of the synagogue and would kill His followers thinking they were serving God. But the reality is they haven't known God nor Him. People that claim the name... There are those that claim the name of God and claim the name of Christ that don't know Him. And the day's coming if our Lord tarries where His church is concerned, some of them may deliver us over to death. The greatest opposition we have seen in the streets of America sharing the gospel is from people claiming the name of Christ. And they're the ones that get so angry because they're the type of people talked about here. God knows the heart and religious sincerity cannot make you clean before Him. Trusting in religious sincerity only adds to your sin and condemnation. Back when the earthquake happened in Nepal, there's a, he used to be a, a, a police officer and he's, he's an evangelist and he's gotten in some trouble in England and Scotland and here in the States. There's a man named Tony Miano. He had just made the comment that his hope and prayer was that these pagan temples that fell in Nepal would never be rebuilt. And there was such a firestorm uh, raised in British media because they knew of him. He had come there and been arrested for sharing the gospel, whatever, whatever. And there was just a firestorm on Facebook about how dare you say that. These people have had these temples for all these years and that's their culture. And there were so-called Christian people lashing out at him for saying that. Thinking they were doing God's service. I've labored in Nepal for the gospel going back to 1999 and I love the Nepali people. I love the Nepali people. It's my hope and prayer that those filthy, degenerate, wicked temples never be rebuilt in that country. Amen. Hinduism and Buddhism is not noble. It leads to hell. It's damnable idolatry. And if I share the name of Jesus and don't mention or call people to turn from their idolatry, then I am doing them a disservice. I'm doing them a disservice. You want to know what Hinduism and Buddhism is? There was a, I saw an article about this a couple of weeks ago. There was Hindus in the Terai belt of Nepal that were afraid because of the earthquakes and the things that had happened. They felt like the gods needed to be appeased. So what did the old Hindu sadhu, what did some of the villagers do? The sadhu sent them down into a nearby village where they found some children playing and they, he told them to go get them a human sacrifice. And so they found a little boy and they enticed him to come with them through candy and chocolates. And they brought him back to that temple and they slew him to appease their gods. That is the religion of those temples that fell. And if you claim to be a Christian and you go to a place like Nepal to do your humanitarian work and you never open your mouth to cry against that and to point people to Jesus Christ, then you are doing a disservice to the God of heaven. And it's better that you stay at home and live your life somewhere. Shame on those that would, would think that rebuilding those temples is a way to help the Nepali people. May they never be rebuilt. Never. Never. 
And the sad thing is, America nowadays has conditioned its aid upon countries embracing abortion and embracing homosexuality. Even a religion as wicked as Hinduism has an understanding of basic morality and knows that abortion is wrong and homosexuality is wrong. But now, if you want to get the aid, you have to promote these things. And as is the case in all man-made religion, money is the God. So people that supposedly have these convictions will quickly turn away from them to profit. Just like the Mormons who turned away from polygamy, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young taught that these were foundational pillars to the Mormon faith. And that you could not succeed in Mormon faith without polygamy. But when things, the political winds didn't allow for that, and there was a threat of U.S. government invasion in the 19th century, and it was going to cost them financially, the Mormon church all of a sudden had a prophet that claimed to have a vision from God that now these things are different. It would be funny when polygamy is legalized in this country to see the Mormons go back to it. But that's what religion does. Religious theology evolves. Biblical theology grows and matures. If you claim that your theology has evolved like T.D. Jokes has done, claiming now that it's okay to be homosexual and you're a homosexual, you should go to LGBT churches, then you're a child of the devil. He's not a false prophet because he says those things. He's always been a false prophet. And those, what, the, what the mouth speaks is, is the heart leak. The heart leaks, the mouth speaks. Wicked. And people are falling prey because they are... They, they serve God according to man-made religion in their own terms. And you don't come to God on your own terms. This tribulation temple is an example of that. Yet another example of a people who should know better, who should recognize these things, who should recognize the, the, the Antichrist. Jesus Christ, more prophecy was given concerning Him and His, and who, his person than any other character in Scripture. The Jews should have recognized His coming. They should have known the timing. They should have known that He would have had to come when the second temple was standing. We'll talk about that prophecy from Haggai next week. Or the week after next. The second persona that's giving, given... Uh, second in terms of the most prophecy and the most details is Antichrist. So they ought to recognize Him when He comes but because they're obsessed with religion and not a relationship with the God of their fathers, they will miss Him and be deceived. God's terms are not religion. God's terms are not church attendance. God's terms are not a temple of God in Jerusalem. They are Messiah, Yeshua, HaMashiach. Jesus said these very powerful words in John chapter 8 to the religious people some of whom claimed they were following Him. Jesus said, I said therefore unto you that you will die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am He, you will die in your sins. We talked about God holding the plumb line in Amos chapter 7 to measure Israel's straightness. They had a wall set by a plumb line but God's plumb line, His measuring stick, showed it to be crooked. Jesus is the measuring stick, the living Word of God. The written Word of God is the measuring stick. It's the plumb line. And it's God's measuring agent that matters. 
not man's. Israel can build this temple all day long, but it's God who measures it. And until Israel turns to Messiah, it won't be right. But those things will happen. It will happen. The read that's given to John here, uh, I find interesting in these first couple of verses. It's, it was a, it, it's a plant that grows along the Jordan River, I believe, in Israel. And they were very long. Okay? These reeds were about 10 feet long. So definitely taller than any man. John was told to measure with an instrument that was longer than himself. That's interesting because the reality is no man measures up to God's measuring agent. So if man can't measure up to God's measuring agent, how can we think we can be right with God apart from His measuring agent? And His measuring agent is the Word of God. The written and the living Word of God. Here, by commanding John to measure these things, verses 1 and 2, or verse 1, God claims ownership of what man thinks is his and demonstrates the shortcomings of those who think they worship him. That's why John is told to rise and measure. There's no further details. When you get later in the book and John describes the new Jerusalem, it's with much detail because these things are not man-centered. They are of God. All that needs to be said here is the temple of God, the altar and those that worship therein. Measured for judgment. There's not a detailed description here of the tribulation temple because it's not a temple built for the glory of God. It's built by those that think they serve God, but they've rejected His Messiah. And it's built so that the man of sin can sit and, and place himself as God therein. Verse 2 John is told that there's something he's not supposed to measure. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Forty-two months is how many years? Three and a half. The Gentiles would tread underfoot the holy city for three and a half years. Antichrist will break the treaty. From that point, the middle of Daniel's 70th week to the return of Christ is three and a half years. The Jews would have their temple, but John's not told to measure the outer court because it's appointed that that temple and that city will be trodden underfoot. This verse tells us that the tribulation temple will be built on the temple mount but it won't be under Israel's authority. It'll be under Gentile authority. The, Gentile, uh, the Gentiles have authority concerning the Temple Mount. There is a modern state of Israel. Jews have been regathered into the land. But even the United States doesn't recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. George W. Bush promised that we would move our consulate there, and that was one of his promises he never kept. Everybody thought George Bush was the greatest Christian in the history of the world and the great savior of the American people. He proved himself to be a joke. He's one that claimed to follow Jesus as savior, but yet had the power to take action in certain areas and didn't do it. That's messed up. I hope he's right with the Lord. But this temple will be built as the Temple Mount remains in Gentile authority. 
And it's interesting to me today that Israel has a land, it has a capital, it has a people, but yet the Temple Mount's not under their authority. It's been delegated to the Muslims to control it. And whatever this treaty involves, the Jews will be allowed to build their temple, but the court of the Gentiles, which in Herod's day was why that retaining wall was built, that's the Temple Mount. It's given to the Gentiles. So even Israel, in a sense, won't completely possess this when it's built. Part of the treaty will put the Temple Mount under Gentile authority, and that that won't be any different than what we see today. Forty-two months is three and a half years. That is the great tribulation that Jesus refers to from the breaking of the treaty until the end. The tabernacle that was built in the wilderness had one court. Okay, Solomon's temple had three courts. There was the court of the priest in the holy place, and then there was the most holy that the high priest went in. Then there was the court, the inner court, which is where the Levites did ministry. And then there was the outer court that the people came. Herod's temple, when he beautified and expanded it, had four courts. There was a court for the priest. There was a court for the Jews. There was a court for the women. And then there was the Gentile court. The Gentile court would have been the outer fringes of what today is the Temple Mount, where people can walk around and look at stuff. The court of the Gentiles. Okay? The Tribulation Temple will have an outer court. Okay? Um, when Jesus went into the temple to cleanse the temple twice, once at the beginning of His ministry, once at the end, He went into the Gentile court, the outer court, and kicked the money changers out. We often think he went into the temple where the altar... No, he went into the Gentile court. Now, these divisions in the temple, the court of the Jews, the women, and the Gentiles, these weren't divisions that God made. They're not found in the Bible. These were rabbi additions. Rabbis love to add to God's Word. Okay? These were rabbinical divisions okay, that characterized Herod's temple in a day when Jesus saw fit to go in and cleanse it because it was not being used for what it was designed to be used. The tribulation temple, by having a Gentile court, is built according to the rabbis. It's not built or centered around God. It's rabbinic Judaism that builds this temple. And I'm here to tell you, my friends, that rabbinic Judaism is one of the wickedest, most dark and degrading and blasphemous religions on the face of the planet. What they do with the Scriptures to deny the prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament is wicked. Rabbinic Judaism is dark. And it's rabbinic Judaism with its multiple courts that will build this temple. It's not the temple of Messiah. It's fascinating that these things are happening, but we need to understand that these are preparation for the time of Jacob's trouble. And we need to pray for her. I know I'm running a little bit late, but it'd be nice if I could finish this quickly. It says in verse 2, the, the outer court is not to be measured, for it is given unto the Gentiles. What does that mean? There are two passages I want to end with today. Luke 21-24 and Romans 11-25. I want to differentiate two things for you. Here we're talking about given to the Gentiles. I'm reminded of what Jesus says in Luke 21. He refers to the times of the Gentiles. But in Romans 11, Paul refers to the fullness of the Gentiles. So let's just um, um, consider 
uh, these term, terms here. Luke 21, 24. If somebody has that, read it real quick. Okay, this is Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. And in Luke, he starts with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Okay? Um, and he telescopes to the time of the end. In Matthew, the signs that he's talking about center around the tribulation. Okay? So Jesus kind of expands the chronology here and he talks about um, Jerusalem being surrounded with armies as a sign, as opposed to Matthew when the abomination of desolation is the sign. But he talks about um, the Jews being led captive into all nations. And that's what's happened in the church age. And that Jerusalem would be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Okay? What has happened to Israel since the Romans destroyed the temple? They were scattered into all nations. Has Jerusalem been the exclusive property of the Jew at any time since that? No. no. It's not today. The Muslims have their own quarter of the old city of Jerusalem. If a Jewish man's caught walking in there, terrible things happen. Okay? So, the times of the Gentiles. What are the times of the Gentiles? Because this refers back to what John is being told about this outer court. The times of the Gentiles began... In 2 Chronicles 36, when Nebuchadnezzar entered the city and destroyed the temple and the city. Since Nebuchadnezzar and the invasion of Babylon, Israel has not exclusively controlled Jerusalem. Never. In the days of the Gospels, Jerusalem was under the authority of the Romans. Okay? The Greeks before that. Daniel talks about four kingdoms that would arise and exert authority over the world and over Israel. Babylon, the days of Nebuchadnezzar, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the Roman Empire has never fully disintegrated. All today's modern nation-states, particularly Western Europe, and the United States by default, because the United States was the transplantation of those nation-states, are remnants of the Roman provinces. Okay? Geographically, politically, and in many other ways, governmentally, the Roman Empire has continued to exist. Okay, we are descendants of that. The times of the Gentiles began when the first temple was destroyed. Since Jerusalem has been under Gentile lordship, as has ultimate control of the Temple Mount, today we are in the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles will not end until Messiah comes. At that time, Israel will be restored to prominence in the earth. And Messiah will reign from Jerusalem. Israel will be restored to the glory of the days of Solomon and even beyond because Messiah Himself, the descendant of Solomon, will reign. That's the times of the Gentiles. And even during this time of the tribulation temple, it's the times of the Gentiles. And that's why John is told not to even bother measure it. It's appointed for this temple mount to be trodden underfoot of the Gentiles. But John is told 42 months because that time is coming to an end. It's appointed for a time. 
A.D. 70, it was a long time. But we're closer today to the end of the time of the Gentiles than we were yesterday. And we're closer than we've ever been before. And from the breaking of that treaty, that time will be limited to 42 months. The Great Tribulation, three and a half years. But Paul speaks of the Gentiles in another way. He uses the fullness of the Gentiles. Okay, We're in the time of the Gentiles, and that's not necessarily a good thing. But we're awaiting the fullness of the Gentiles. Those are two different things. Turn to Romans 11 real quick and I'll end with this today. This allows me to say that I actually preached verse 2 and we can start with verse 3 next week or two weeks from now. Romans 11.25 For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. And he's, this is in the context of, 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 of the olive tree and how Israel rejected Messiah and was cut off, and we, wild olive branches, have been grafted in to the blessings, the spiritual blessings of Abraham. But not to be haughty, because God could restore again the natural branches. Israel. Okay? He's able to graft them in again. And then Paul, having given this Im- image, or this visualization, says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part, not all, partial blindness, because God's been saving Jewish people for 2,000 years since Christ, and there are many Jewish believers who are a part of the church. The church is Jew and Gentile. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. The times of the Gentiles end with the coming of Christ. The fullness of the Gentiles end when? When does God, when are the Gentiles fully incorporated and then God turns His attention again to the Jews? At the rapture. The times of the Gentiles end with the coming of Christ. And that's 42 months after the treaty is broken and Antichrist sets Himself up as God. The fullness of the Gentiles end when Jesus is done building His church and the last Gentile convert comes therein. At that point, as far as the church, not the last Gentile saved, there's tribulation saints. But at that point, Israel's blindness will begin to be lifted. And then what does it say in verse 26? And so all Israel shall be saved. There will be a national awakening. They'll have to be drugged through the thorns like Manasseh to get to that point. But as the times of the Gentiles come to a close, there'll be a national awakening. And so all Israel living at that day, remaining, remember we talked about that's a small remnant, a tenth of all Jews living in the world. So a lot will have to die. We'll be saved. Okay? We are laboring because we want to see the end of the times of the Gentiles. If we love Jesus and love Yeshua, Yeshua, we love His brethren. Who are His brethren? The Jews. We want to see these things restored to the glory of God. We want to see the end of the times of the Gentiles. But we're also laboring to see the end of the fullness of the Gentiles so that we can be with our Lord and He can come take us to be with Himself. All of these things work together. John is told not to measure the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. It's given to the Gentiles. God has a plan and a purpose for the Gentiles. But that doesn't mean He's forgotten His plan and His purpose for the Jews. Two programs, the church and Israel. They don't 
conflict with one another. They don't re- one of them doesn't replace the other. Two programs in God's plan and purpose for the ages. And the chief end of any of God's programs is His glory, not man's glory. So, that brings us to the end of verse 2. And uh, I hope we can talk about the two witnesses that will prophesy during this time period. They will prophesy when this temple stands. And undoubtedly, they will cry out against it because they'll know the truth and they'll be hated for it. Just like a street preacher, by and large, a street preacher that preaches the truth, by and large, is hated today. It's nothing new. The prophets were hated in their day. And God's two street preachers will be hated. In verse 3, it says, I will give power unto my two witnesses. There's the proof right there that the mighty angel in chapter 10 is Jesus Christ. I've told you that's who I believe it is. How do we know? Verse 3, I. Who's the one talking to John, the mighty angel? I will give power to my two witnesses. We'll get into that next week. Does anybody have any questions? Or not next week. Next week, our team, the mission team's returning. We'll have a time of testimony and fellowship. The week after, we will return and discuss the testimony of Jesus' two special witnesses. Okay? So, again... Zechariah chapter 4 is a good place to look because that verse, that image or that prophecy is quoted or cited or alluded to here. And um, just study chapter 11. It all goes together. And remember, this is all part of the second woe. Okay? This is all part of the second woe, which was what? The sixth trumpet. 